Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Tal Shalev, chief political correspondent for Walla News and longtime friend of this podcast and Israel Policy Forum generally, is back with us today for a deep dive into Israeli politics. Yes, in the shadow of the ongoing Gaza war. We'll be talking about the state of play of the current emergency wartime government, whether elections are really in the air, and of course, can Bibi Netanyahu survive? For anyone curious about the latest developments in the actual Gaza war, do check out last week's episode of my conversation with Shani Reichman. But let's be honest, in Israel, sadly, and I say this really sadly, everything is political, even during a war, and most certainly after a war. Let's get Hi, Tal. Welcome back to Visual Policy Pod. Hi, Neri. Happy to be here. Uh, we're very happy to have you back, Tal. You may not remember this, but I do. You were supposed to be our guest the week of October 8th. But mm, we had I to. Don't. Yeah, uh, a lot has happened since then. We obviously had to cancel um, that week. Politics took a backseat uh, to the war. But now, in my opinion, politics is back in a big, big way which we'll dive into in a second. But I wanted to start here, and this is a question I ask all the guests who have been on these last three months. Uh, how are you doing, and how have, have you been doing since October 7th? So, you know, there's no really good answer to that question since October 7th. We Everyone has, like, their own version of a politically correct answer, which does not imply that you are in a good mood or that everything is okay uh, but rather to find a way to express that everything is not okay. So when I'm asked how am I doing since October 7th, I say I'm doing okay given the circumstances, right? Uh, um, at large, I feel like personally and I think professionally as well, um, it's been like a long day, right? It hasn't been three months. It's just been this it's like on the October 7th, we fell into this abyss and we're still there and we don't know how we're going to get out of it. And sometimes it seems that it's only going to get worse. And sometimes it seems that it's only going to get better. Um, I think that, you know, on October 7th, we did not, I personally did not understand, you know, the magnitude of this disaster um, and catastrophe that happened to Israel. And um, they really to be honest, has basically just been causing so much grief, sorrow, and pain. Uh, It's not as there there, wasn't one day a horrendous attack and then it was over. It's an ongoing attack as long as the hostages are there. It's an ongoing concern uh, to their situation. As long as there's fighting going on in Gaza, there are uh, casualties Right. Uh, on both sides, of course, but on his, on the Israeli side, continuous uh, casualties uh, from this war. And uh, again, this uh, constant, um, what I think, uh, even existential anxiety from what is going to happen in the north. So all of this together is kind of, you know, there's no good answer to the question, how are you doing? Uh, especially not when there are 136 uh, hostages still captured in Gaza. 
Um, and, you know, Israel is a very small country. So to begin with, everyone knows someone who knows someone who was either killed or uh, abducted or his house was ruined and destructed on October 7th. And if they don't, then by now, you know, most Israelis already know the hostages, their names, their families. It's like everyone, it's it's like, it really is uh, a sense of something missing. So and, uh, personally, and also, that's been... Yeah, mm-hmm. and also now... Since uh, there's a ground campaign inside Gaza, uh, a lot of people know reservists or regular army soldiers who are fighting and potentially injured or uh, that have been fallen in the battle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it, so uh, to be honest, there has been, you know, a change because you probably remember as well, you know, October, November, for instance, here in Tel Aviv, where I live. Uh, we were on under constant uh, rocket attacks and sirens. And to be honest, since the ground uh, operation charge uh, started, that has been becoming more and more rare. So it creates this kind of very, I think, uh, absurd situation in which, you know, here in Tel Aviv, it seems like life is almost back to normal. But, um, you know, nothing is normal in a situation where about 120 to 150,000 Israelis are evacuated from their homes in the north and the south. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing is normal for those hostages. And nothing is normal for those uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, reservists. And nothing is normal for the family of those reservists. You know, Israel has never been in such a long war. So even the experience of having a father of a family go away for three months is something that Israeli mothers have not experienced yet in their lifetime and not at all in Israel's history. So all in all, uh, you know, nationally, we are still uh, in the midst of of the crisis and in the midst of the abyss. Um, Professionally, uh, you said, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, when the war began, there wasn't so much politics and politics took uh, diff, you know, to, a back to a back bench. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily agree, I have to say. Yeah, we, um, we, we had this I conversation, think, I think, very early on in the war, too, when I called you. Yeah, so I think there's politics all the time, especially coming out from Netanyahu. There's been uh, politics all the time. And then that kind of creates, professionally, for me, this kind of dissonance, because Everyone around is like, we don't want to hear about politics right now. This is a time for unity. We don't want to talk about politics. But yet, you know, the politicians are still doing politics all the time. Um, so that has created, uh, I think, uh, has kind of um, increased my frustration uh, um, these days. Just because, uh, um, A, politics is happening all the time. And B... The coalition, the ruling coalition, the government has not changed even, you know, one aspect of the way it operates since um, essentially, I mean, um, since October 7th, this is a coalition that still is controlled, very much controlled by the uh, extremists and by the zealots. And this is a coalition that still is not making the best decisions for the country's sake. So uh, all in all. Uh, you asked how I'm doing. I would give you a four or three out of ten, probably. That's uh, higher than I expected, but probably honest, given, uh, like you said, the semblance of normalcy where we live in Tel Aviv, at least over the past, say, month, uh, which is very weird if uh, 
if you're actually following the war, impacted by the war, or going either to the south or the north, which uh, those are still very much uh, war zones to one extent or another. Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend in Washington earlier today, and she also asked me uh, how I was doing. And I said, basically, it's just been like the movie Groundhog Day, where you wake up in the morning and it seems like the same day again and again and again. It's just always usually terrible news and there's no Bill Murray to uh, to cheer us up. Um, and no end in sight either. Uh, this is going to keep going for a whole lot longer, uh, as we both know. Um, I wanted to get into the politics and the actual politics of this coalition. And just by way of context for our listeners, uh, we should remind them that Netanyahu very early on in the war, the first week, formed an emergency wartime government with Benny Gantz and his National Unity Party, who joined both uh, the wider security cabinet and the war cabinet, actually running the war. But Netanyahu, as you mentioned, Tal, still kept intact his entire original coalition, the 64-seat fully, fully, as I say here, right-wing government, uh, although most of them are cratering in the polls, most of those parties. Uh, in recent weeks, we're getting a sense that politics is definitely back, uh, at least in my opinion, and elections, uh, God help us, are in the air, uh, or maybe not. That's why you're here, Tal. So let's start here. How is this new slash updated Netanyahu wartime coalition doing, uh, in your opinion? Is it long for this world? So first of all, putting politics aside for the moment, um, the fact that uh, Gantz, and especially Eisenkot, Gadi Eisenkot, um, joined the war cabinet, in my opinion, is the most significant and important thing um, that happened to Israel, um, not to Netanyahu, but to Israel uh, on, on the 11th of October. Their presence uh, in the war cabinet has had um, much, a lot of influence on specific points especially on everything that has to do with the hostages. Just um, just to, to lay it out, when the Netanyahu's government and cabinet first convened after the 7th of October, nobody was talking about bringing back the hostages as one of the goals of the war. And only when they joined Gantz and Isaacot, uh, the war cabinet, do they put that on the table and they put... Putting back, bringing back the hostages and the release of the hostages is one of the two main goals of the war alongside toppling Hamas. Um, another influential uh, point where they were very um, pivotal was um, on the 11th of October itself, which is a day, the day they actually joined the war cabinet, but also the day in which uh, Defense Minister Gallant and some of the uh, some of the uh, top security brass were pushing for an attack in Lebanon, um, and of course we have already read in the Wall Street Journal that the uh, Biden administration was not happy about that. Um, let's say that Netan- I I know that Netanyahu was not happy about the idea as well. And bringing in Gantz and Eisenkot actually helped Netanyahu, uh, you know, consolidate that position and consolidate the position that Israel does not need to open a second front and needs to focus 
um, on battling uh, the war. Another place where they have been extremely influential is actually the dynamics inside the war cabinet. It's no secret that the relationship between Netanyahu and Gallant is horrible, and I think horrible is probably even giving it a compliment. Um, there, uh, it hasn't recuperated yeah. since Netanyahu actually fired Gallant back in March, but it's only deteriorated over the past few weeks. Um, these two, uh, almost on a weekly basis, there is some report about some row or disagreement or ego battle um, that these two people are in. And the fact that Gantz and Eisenkot were there kind of, you know, diffuse the tensions and actually creates kind of a safe space, the war cabinet, in which you also have Ron Dermer and you also have Ali Deri, but it's kind of a safe space where you know that that personal enmity is not taking over the decision-making. It's a safe space for decision-making. Um, another thing that uh, has been extremely influential has been, you know, the impact of the, legitim- the legitimacy that they give, that Gantz and Eisenkot give Netanyahu to even send, and, and his government, to even sending people to war. Um, you know, up until uh, mm-hmm. um, October 7th, we were in the midst of a very, very, very deep and frightening and dangerous internal rift. Um, and I, if without Gantz and Eisenkot there, I, you know, we can only speculate, but I think it would be much more difficult uh, for Netanyahu and Ben Gvir and Smotrich to um, actually, you know, uh, give out orders in the war. Uh, um, there's also... You know, a constant, uh, um, the, the government, Netanyahu and senior figures in his government are always in a constant fight with the security forces, especially after the 7th of October, because they're already preparing, you know, the battle over the responsibility the day after the war. And even here, Gantz and Eisenkot and their party members are actually those who are, you know, protecting and bolstering the IDF chief of staff, the head of the Shin Bet security services, um, and other uh, top security officials that appear in front of Netanyahu's government and cabinet, when they are attacked, Gantz and Isaacot are the people who are uh, uh, protecting them and who are standing behind them and giving them their backing. Another important point, of course, is internationally. Um, the minute, the fact that Gantz and Isaacot are part of, the, part of this war cabinet means a lot to the United States. It also means that Israel, the message that Israel is sending on every one of these matters, whether if it's on, you know, the hostages, the fate of the hostages, or the fighting in the South, or the uh, attempt to prevent a war, another war opening in the in the North, on all of these issues, the war cabinet does present a wide consensus in Israel. Um, and they kind of give Netanyahu both an internal legitimacy, but also international legitimacy. So that's where I think, you know, the um, benefits of this, uh, the main benefits of this uh, relationship and this kind of, I call it, it's basically, it's a, it's a creature, right? It's a political creature. The war cabinet is a political creature that was, um, you know, personally designed for this situation in which kind of enables Netanyahu to continue, as you mentioned earlier, to continue and maintain his 64 coalition, thinking, of course, on, about the day after, mm-hmm. and continue to have uh, his 
a partnership with Bengville and Smotrich, but on the other hand, make the very cr- big and crucial decisions without them. And it's kind of, um, so, so the limitation of this is, of course, that as we all, it's quite familiar from the past, you know, the relationship between Netanyahu and Gantz is, is not an equal relationship. It's a relationship in which Netanyahu basically is getting a lot and not giving anything. Mm-hmm. And, Gantz is, and Gantz is giving a lot and not getting anything. And on the contrary, Netanyahu is already violating their agreement. Uh, they have a very narrow coalition agreement. But even that narrow coalition agreement, Netanyahu has already um, violated. Um, Netanyahu has been campaigning uh, on his over his over Gantz's head, you know, trying to um, a present him as someone who might be responsible as just like him to the disaster of the seventh of October because he was an IDF chief of staff and because he was a uh, defense minister uh, up until uh, um, June uh, up until twenty two twenty two yeah um, the the end of twenty two um, and also he's been campaigning against him. Because if we look at the polls now, Gantz is Netanyahu's biggest threat, right? Gantz is now, you know, the, 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 the most uh, potential runner-up for the next prime minister, if you judge by the polls right now. So altogether, we have Gantz once again being very patriotic and, you know, kind of risking his political, uh, um, his political uh, not career, because actually... This time it's become it helped him. Yeah, this time it's helping him. He's uh, he's become even more popular. But basically, he really isn't getting anything. Netanyahu is not hasn't changed anything in his priorities. The government hasn't changed anything in their priorities and their budget priorities. So, um, so, so because it's an unequal relationship, I can tell you that unequal relationships usually do not last that much. So we are. Um, I think next week we're going to be a hundred days to the war, um, and a few days later it'll be a hundred days to the convening of the war cabinet. I wouldn't bet on it uh, marking the war cabinet another hundred days as it feels right now. Very interesting, and uh, yes, toxic relationships are usually not long for this world either. Uh, and I liked how you emphasized that it was truly important for Gantz and Eisenkot and their party to enter into the coalition. Um, you know, the unofficial slogan of this war here in Israel has been, uh, together we will win, Yahad uh, and So this emphasis on unity, which uh, was really emphasized by this uh, national emergency wartime government. Uh, but on the flip side, as you alluded to, Tal, uh, it hasn't been very equal and it hasn't been very, say, uh, unifying or togetherness in terms of the actual functioning of this government. So you mentioned the positive side of the ledger, but on the negative side of the ledger, we are still seeing the far-right members of this government, whether Betzalel Smotrich, Itama Ben-Gvir, even some people inside Likud, really uh, pulling the government and even wartime policy to the right, right? Like there's no day after in Gaza planning as demanded by the U.S. and also by the security establishment. Uh, uh, here, I, I think the responsibility shouldn't be laid on Ben Gvir and Smotrich. The responsibility of their no uh, discussion of the day after is totally on Netanyahu, who does no, not want my... to hold that discussion because of Ben Gvir and Smotrich. But that's exactly um, the point. That yeah, he he's still so beholden to them 
And yeah, but that's been the but that's been true all along. Gantz gave you know if we go back to the seventh of October, then um, Yair Lapid was the first to arrive on uh, and meet Netanyahu that day, and he offered him a totally different you know solution. He offered to join the the, the government to form an emergency co- uh, government, but mm-hmm. he said you have to change. Um, you know, the direction that the country is going. You have to really di- change the direction the country is going. And he demanded... And fire Benville exactly. and Smotrich. Exactly. But then Gantz came and he wanted to differentiate himself from Lapid, as he always does. And he basically gave Netanyahu, you know, an offer he couldn't refuse. Um, he told him, you can keep your 64. All I want is to join the war cabinet, right? So... The, and, and the minute that Gantz kind of gave him that gift, then Netanyahu is definitely using that gift. And it, it, you're right, at every juncture in which Netanyahu has had to choose between Benvir and Smotrich and between Gantz, it's always been Benvir and Smotrich. And spo- spoiler is that I think it will always continue to be Benvir and Smotrich because Netanyahu is still the same Netanyahu. And That means his number one priority is himself and his survival. And the day after the war, Gantz is not going to be there for him. But his coalition, there is, a, there, there, are, there is a chance that his coalition can actually save him or at least temporarily save him. So his priorities are very, very clear. Um, and I have to say they haven't changed. It's not as if at some point he started... acting like this he's been acting like this since the since day one and by the way it really you know it gives you a deja vu to their first time together uh <laughs> in 2020 <laughs> in which the same it was exactly the same not exactly of course because the 7th of October disaster was totally different than the corona but again it was a time of huge you national anxiety and Gantz did the right patriotic thing and he came and gave Netanyahu a saving wheel a safe wheel a saving wheel um, uh, a life a life preserver a like, life, uh, yeah, yeah exactly a lifesaver um, <laughs> and the minute he did that Netanyahu I mean the the day after literally Netanyahu yeah. already started to work against him so you know people here and you perhaps me myself you know the day after the 7th of October with all the shock and the trauma we were like and everything's going to be different the day after everything's going to be different well some things are not different some things are not going to change and that one of them and I think uh, or at least that way it seems in the past three months is Netanyahu yeah unfortunately so We talked about uh, tensions inside this current government uh, between Netanyahu and Gallant, uh, tensions between Netanyahu and Gantz, uh, the, the codependence, maybe, or maybe it's just a one-sided dependence between Netanyahu and the far right, whether Smotrich, Ben-Gvir, etc. So given all these dynamics, some, like we said, very, very toxic, what do you think will be the trigger for either... dissolving the Knesset and going to snap elections or maybe replacing the government through what we call here a constructive no confidence move in the parliament um, or maybe mass protests on the streets the renewal of the anti-government protest movement 
uh, or none of the above, and the government kind of stumbles along uh, until I don't know when. So what do you think in terms of your predictions slash expectations? What are we what are we likely looking at? So first of all, uh, you know me very well, and you know that I'm not uh, a big fan of uh, predictions. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, as far as I can go, first of all, uh, there's still we're still not in what any one of those scenarios, and that should be on the table. As long as Gantz and Eisenkot are part of the war cabinet and will be part of the government, then nothing is going to happen. Um, and as long, I, I feel quite safe to say that as long as there are so many hostages, uh, it's still in Gaza and so many Israeli residents from the South and the North, not in their homes, we won't see Gantz and Eisenkot leaving the cabinet. Um, mm. even though I have a note on that regarding the hostages deal, but we'll get to that later. But okay. let's let's say we do get to the point where Gantz and Eisenkot, Gantz decides to leave the government. So then, yes, there are two main scenarios. Uh, one scenario, uh, well, there are actually three main scenarios. Uh, one scenario, which you mentioned, uh, which people like to mention is the constructive uh, vote of no confidence, which basically means that there will be a different government, a different coalition inside this current Knesset without going to elections. Now, that's not really plausible because you need between 11 to 15 defectors from the coalition in order to form an alternative government in this Knesset. Because you have um, the 56 seats of the opposition, but you have to take six of those seats off because six of them belong to Hadash Ta'al, which will not support any Zionist government whatsoever. Yeah, the Arab party. Ra'am, the other Arab party, might support. But Hadash Ta'al definitely will not support. And that leaves you with... 50 seats, which means in order to get to a majority of 61 in the Knesset, you need at least 11 coalition members. I'm sorry, that's my dog in the, my new dog. No, he, yeah. he also doesn't like the constructive no confidence motion. No, um, no. But, so, but also, um, but by, yeah. the, by the way, Tal, uh, these defectors would almost certainly have to come from within the Likud party, right? Well, um, or from the Likud, or from one of other Netanyahu's partners that will decide that, you know, they're fed up and they're willing to break up the alliance, the historic alliance. Uh, I don't think, I don't think you can find 11 people from the Likud who will revolt against Netanyahu. Um, you haven't, there, it's, there, there's a huge difference between, um, you know, the Likud voters who are very disappointed with Netanyahu after the 7th of October mm-hmm. and between Likud lawmakers and the Likud members of Knesset and the Likud ministers mm-hmm. who are not uh, elected by the Likud voters. They are li- elected by the Likud members and the Likud members, which is about 120 to 130,000 uh, people, their Netanyahu is still very, very strong. So, 
Personally, I don't see any defection scenario actually coming out of the Likud. I think that um, if we haven't seen five brave men rise from the Likud in the past five years, after everything that Netanyahu has you know, put this country through, I don't think that they're going to do it now. Um, and so about- not even... Not even, say, Gallant himself from the Likud, Yuli Edelstein, Again, you uh, need Nir to Balkat. have a mass number. You need to mm-hmm. have 11 people. 11. I don't think they can get to that number. Okay. So you might have Gallant and Edelstein, but that's two. And then you might have David Bittan, and you might have Danny Danone, but that's four. Right. You need 11. It's a high bar. So um, that I don't think the Likud scenario is very, very plausible. Um, another scenario could be, again, that one of Netanyahu's partners, specifically, you know, the, the, the immediate suspect is Shas. Um, but I don't see that happening either, which leaves us with another, with the second scenario, which is elections. For elections, you don't need so many uh, Knesset members from, to defect. Because you have 56 members of the coalition, all of the Arab part of the opposition, excuse me, all of the Arab parties have no problem to vote for a new election. And then you need only five more hands from the coalition in order to bring to a new election. Another option that is definitely plausible is that Netanyahu himself will rush to a quick election um, in order to kind of try and consolidate uh his uh, um, to try and consolidate whatever he can from his power. Um, and the last scenario is, of course, and I think it is very, very realistic, is that Netanyahu survives, at least for a few more months. Uh, you know, in order, uh, coalitions, it's true that um, when Gantz leaves the government, there is going to be some kind of breakout, some kind of public breakout. You know, the demonstrations, the demands... Uh, for Netanyahu to resign will probably become much louder and much stronger. But still, governments do not fall from protests. Governments fall from within. Mm-hmm. Governments fall, coalitions break up from within. So as long as Netanyahu keeps his coalition together, he can definitely survive. And that leads us to the last scenario, which is in which one of Netanyahu's partners decides to leave him and decides to bring down the government. Um, so I can tell you which one of the partners will not do that. It won't be Bezalel Smotrich, who currently doesn't pass the electoral threshold in the polls. Right. But it definitely may be Itamar Ben-Gvir, especially if the war um, ends or you know moves to a next stage without any significant achievement. You can already hear... Ben Gvir for three months, basically, already campaigning against the policy of the war cabinet and basically campaigning against Netanyahu. And if Netanyahu does not finish this war, you know, with some kind of grand photo of victory, which I don't see that happening, but if he doesn't, then Ben Gvir will might decide that it is his chance to, you know, try and take away the votes and try to, you know, uh, for, to, 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 to get stronger himself. And he might decide that, that it's the right time to kind of break up the alliance with uh, Netanyahu. So that is basically 
most of the scenarios which are which can play out but again it'll only play out after Gantz leaves the government and we should mention Ben Gvir out of all of Netanyahu's original 64 seat coalition he's the only one actually rising in the polls because he's uh, trying to outflank both Netanyahu and the government from the right he's going around telling everyone well I told you so uh, I told you this would happen we needed to be uh, much harsher and harder on the Palestinians. We needed to um, hand out weapons much earlier to the public, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he's the only one actually uh, rising in the polls out of all of them, at least for the past couple of months. Um, so, just on the issue of Gantz, so you don't see him leaving the emergency wartime government with Netanyahu anytime soon. But what could be the trigger for him uh, in Eisenkot actually? actually leaving? Could it be just a question of, of time in terms of the war in Gaza? Okay, you get to a very lower intensity phase. Is it the threat of an escalation in the north uh, being taken off the table and then he doesn't have to worry about that? I mean, what will he just stay in so long as the war goes on? And if the war goes on for another year, he'll just no, stay no. in? I don't think that's a situation. I mean, you know, generally or hypothetically, that could be the situation. But um, A, I think that, uh, you know, Gantz has put, or at least Gantz's people, they put out very clear signs. One is that the um, fighting in Gaza moves to a much less intense stage, which is actually happening as we speak gradually, but it's happening. Um, meaning that most of the reservists will already be back home. I think that's one of the main parameters. Another parameter, as you're, you're totally right, is to see what happens in the North. He will not leave as long as there's still question marks about the North. Um, and um, um, the third one is the hostages. Now, um, you know, in the recent days, we're hearing once again reports about, you know, the, Qatar the Qataris trying to, you know, renew the negotiations and people trying to refuel the negotiations here in Israel. One of the reasons for that is because I think that if there isn't another hostages deal, uh, a hostages release in the upcoming weeks, then Gantz and Eisenkot will come to the conclusion that they might not want to stay anymore in the government. I mean, if there's no deal in the upcoming weeks, then I think that then we will see them uh, lose their patience and start to lose the and start um, talking seriously talking about leaving the government. Um, I think at the moment the hostages is the main thing that keeps them inside the government. But as long as they see if there's no substantial progress. Um, and they see, yeah, that all they are doing there is, you know, giving legitimacy to Netanyahu's very bad government, then I think we will see some, something happening in the next few weeks. You know, all the timelines converge. You have, um, Gantz doesn't really have a timeline because he's all about patriotism, but there is some kind of, you know, strategic, diplomatic timeline regarding, you know, the end, the, 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 the transition between the phases in Gaza. And there is also a political timeline because uh, by the 20th of February, the government has to approve a new uh, budget uh, for 2024. 
Um, Guns, the way it seems right now, they're not going to do any dramatic uh, changes in the budget. They're going to continue, um, you know, putting out a lot of sectorial money to the settlers and to the ultra-Orthodox parties. Um, And at least Netanyahu thinks that the exit point will be by the 20th of February, that Gantz's exit point will be by the 20th of February. So the upcoming, you know, month or month and a half are going to be the crucial um, weeks, uh, both from Netanyahu's point of view and from uh, uh, Gantz's point of view. So this is interesting that the budget could be one of the explanations that Gantz gives for him breaking up the wartime. He needs a story, right? He needs a story. He needs a story because, uh, so the story was, we're joining for the war. But now it's clear that A, Netanyahu does not want to end the war. If you listen to Netanyahu and to his people, they're talking, you know, their definition of war is until the last soldier is out of Gaza. And then they're talking about, you know, years. Um, and Gantz's definition of a war is of, you know, the intense fighting, which at least in Gaza seems that it's going to, uh, transit and change to a different phase, uh, uh, soon. But, um, Gantz doesn't want to stay there all of the war. On the contrary, Gantz wants to have elections, right? He wants yeah. to cash on his popularity as quick as, as soon as possible before the new actors come in and start taking Away all of his uh, all of all of his very impressive numbers he's been um, getting in the polls. So I and, don't remember where we started, but you can continue from here. No, no, uh, that was you. You answered my question very well uh, because that is an interesting timeline in terms of okay, it's not happening next week uh, or tomorrow, but in a month or so, we could actually see see movement precisely for the reasons that you laid out. And uh, you're also correct that in terms of what we were talking about earlier, a uh, you know replacement government in the current Knesset, you know constructive no confidence vote, you know Gantz doesn't really want to do that probably because right now he's sitting on what twelve seats, and in the polls he's getting over thirty. Uh, so why would he give up potentially the prime ministership just to replace the current government for exactly a exactly. limited amount of time? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, True. I got that political analysis correct. I'm, I, no, I also, from uh, Tasha Lev. No, he has, right now, he has, you know, 35 to 40 polls in the seats. But in the Knesset, he has 12 seats. So he's not going to be the alternate pro- prime minister, right? The alternate prime minister, if there was some kind of hypothetical alternate alternate government, the, alter- the, the prime minister would probably be from the Likud. Right. Because yep. um, that would be the only way to convince Likudniks to come. So that's why Gantz definitely prefers a scenario of a new election. But I also and that's, by the way, also the reason that Lapid prefers an alternate government, because Lapid <laughs> currently has 24 seats in the Knesset. But if you look at the polls, he's losing at least 50 percent of his uh, power. So he has every incentive to be the most significant party in alternate in an alternate uh, um, coalition. So uh, I have to say that personally, I do think that essentially elections is better for the country because there has been, you know, the crisis of the, the trust and the breach of trust between the Israeli public and their leadership. It doesn't matter if it's Netanyahu or no, 
right? It's just the whole leadership. It kind of enables, I think the Israeli public has the right to have a Knesset in which after such a disaster, a right to have a Knesset in which they, you know, that, that they have, that they put their trust in. Um, yeah. A new renewed trust to have a kind of you know renewed contact between uh, um, between the people and uh, their leadership. Um, so and personally, I think um, that is better than uh, an alternate government. But uh, I'm not the one deciding. So right, and especially after the disaster of this past year, really, if we're looking at it in its totality, in this six Netanyahu government in this current Knesset, um, just a disaster, which we're also seeing during the war on a day-to-day basis uh, with all these leaks from the cabinet deliberations where you have uh, right-wing ministers uh, in this government, you know, yelling at the security chiefs that are trying to ably prosecute a war. Um, But that's a, a different story. Tal, you touched on something that really intrigues me. These outside actors... Mm-hmm. Not in the current Knesset, not in the current government, rubbing up their engines on the sidelines, just waiting for a new election to be called. I want to go through a list of these big ticket names, mm-hmm. and I want to get your your opinion. So I want to start off with the former prime minister who, after he was prime minister, took a time out from politics, uh, Naftali Bennett, uh, along with potentially his former running mate, uh, the former justice minister, Ayala Shaked. Uh, what do you think? Is he really planning and plotting his comeback? For sure. A, for sure. B, I'm not sure it's going to be with Ayala Chaked. Mm. Um, and C, back to A, is yes. <laughs> Bennett, um, historically, is very, very good at campaigning over na- national disasters. If we look back, or national crises, if we look back at his, you know, his political history, So during the 2014 Gaza war, Bennett, you know, campaigned very strongly on the issue of the tunnels. And he kind of differentiated himself all the time on the tunnels and kind of branded himself with the tunnel threat, with the one who identified and who was busy taking care of the tunnel threat. So that was 2014. When there was the COVID crisis in 2020, Bennett wasn't part of the government, but he definitely Start. He um, start opened his own alternative uh, uh, Corona cabinet in which he had experts uh, giving, you know, uh, kind of like a shadow uh, Corona cabinet. And he was campaigning all the time. And here again, he is campaigning. He is. Um, you can see it. A. His social media accounts are working full power since the seventh of October. He's doing, you know, prime ministerial things like. Um, interviews, uh, um, international interviews, taking part, you know, of the uh, Hasbara um, mm-hmm. effort. Um, he's been uh, going around the country, meeting uh, with bereaved families, meeting with uh, people who have been evacuated, communities who have been evacuated from the north and the south. Um, all of this constant, um, constantly, you know, uh, updating on social media. But also, he's been uh, criticizing uh, the government very, very much, uh, in, you know, hard points, very difficult points. Uh, for instance, back in the late, late October, just as, you know, Qatar started to move the first, uh, hostage deal, 
And uh, um, here Israel was starting to acknowledge the fact that Qatar is the main mediator here. Then Bennett um, tweeted that uh, cooperating with Qatar is like cooperating with the devil, or don't take me by my word, but he attacked and cr- highly criticized um, the cooperation with Qatar. A few days later, just as the IDF is kind of preparing for the ground incursion, then Bennett publishes online his plan to how to take care of Gaza without a grand incursion. And just last week, if I'm not mistaken, he publishes out of the blue, you know, this Wall Street Journal, um, this Wall Street Journal uh, article op-ed in which he, uh, you know, outlines uh, his Iranian policy and brags about his uh, Iranian policy as he was prime minister that wasn't a op-ed that was intended to for international readers. That was an op-ed that was intended for Israeli readers that they should read about something that there was, by the way, that was censored here in Israel. So mm-hmm. they can read about it in the Wall Street Journal and know, oh, so Bennett was strong against Iran and Netanyahu is weak against Iran. So all of this ends. He is meeting with people. He is make, he is doing political meetings. He's definitely preparing. And by the way, he has very good expectations in the polls. So he, for instance, Bennett, is Gantz's biggest threat. Because according to the polls, you know, right now Gantz has these 35 to 40 uh, seats uh, in the polls. But the minute Gannett, Bennett uh, enters the political system, he once again... Um, now is predicted to have 20 to 22 seats. And Gantz suddenly comes back, comes down to 25 to 27 seats. That's significant. That doesn't make him necessarily, you know, the main contender for the next prime minister. Um, so Bennett is one of the most uh, interesting uh, um, players there. I don't think he will. Well, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not sure. He will cooperate with Shaked again. From what I understand, his focus, he will try to focus to be much more centrist than uh, he was in the past. And Ayelet Shaked is very much, you know, associated with the right and with Netanyahu. And uh, I'm not sure that they will cooperate again. And do you think Bennett will form once again for I don't know how many times his own party? Yeah, he will form his own party. Uh, it's actually, uh, I think it's only the second time he's really forming his own party. Um, but the other time... But they all have a million different names. Yeah, they just have a lot of different names. But um, okay. um, yes, there. listen, um, there will be another right-wing party between the Likud and Benny Gantz. Okay, there will be a new right wing party. I don't know if it will be led by Bennett or if it'll be led by Yossi Cohen or if it'll be led by Avigdor Lieberman or Gidon Saar. Uh, but it, there will be another right wing party. And again, and Bennett, I think, is opting for that party to be his own. And you beat me to the question. The second person, Yossi Cohen, the former head of Mossad, He's also been very visible these last few months, uh, giving a lot of interviews. Do you think, A, he joins the political scene? And what would that actually look like for him? Will he form his own party? 
So, um, A, I'm not sure that Yossi Cohen has decided himself. He's definitely flirting with the idea of entering politics. He definitely likes the spotlight. He definitely has been using the spotlight very much during the war. Um, I think there hasn't been a week in which he hasn't given an interview. Um, mm -hmm. So he is flirting with the idea. Um I'm not sure how practical the idea is because uh, from what I understand, he hasn't been making very concrete steps to enter politics. So he thinks that he is Yossi Cohen and he also gets very good, you know, outlooks in the polls. So he thinks he's Yossi Cohen with all the glam of being, you know, the ex-Mossad director, et cetera, et cetera, and that he will... He will come down from, you know, just from the sky and everyone will want them to join his party and, okay, just come and lead us. It just doesn't work that way in politics. Um, he's, Yossi Cohen is probably most popular amongst Likud voters, but I don't think that it's, it, it, it's going to be very complicated for him to enter the Likud because in order to run uh, in the Likud, you have to have 16 months of um, membership. Yeah, of membership. So he is not a member of the Likud right now. The only way he can become a member of the Likud is if Netanyahu signs, um, you know, signs, uh, get, signs him off that requirement. I don't see Netanyahu doing that. And I especially don't see... Anyone else in the Likud, especially people who have been waiting for years for Netanyahu to leave, I don't see them opening the door for Yossi Cohen so quickly. So if Yossi Cohen does enter politics, I don't think it's going to be in the Likud. It'll probably be in a different party. And that's really interesting in and of itself, because Yossi Cohen, for years, uh, some say that's the reason why he got the top job at Mossad. He was deemed very close to Netanyahu. Uh, but it seems like there is a, a lot more distance in that relationship than there was previously, that he's so actually giving a, interviews and criticizing the government. Yeah, so A, um, there's been, from what I know, there, there's, there's been a distance in the relationship for quite a while right now. But I should add, you know, as we are all conspiracy, we all, we all political reporters always have <laughs> tons of conspiracy theories in their minds. And um, they're all true is, in Israeli politics. <laughs> so there is kind of, you know, a suspicion, a, I would say a conspiracy suspicion that um, perhaps Netanyahu will actually encourage Yossi Cohen to run on his own and to stage as if there is some gap and difference and distance between them. And in that way, he will be kind of a satellite party that the day after the next election will eventually join Netanyahu. So it'll be a satellite party that will be able to, you know, kind of... Uh, um, take seats away from Gantz and Bennett. And, 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 and take the disappointed votes from, uh, votes from the Likud. Mm -hmm. And um, so... So that's uh, so so, so um, that's one of the suspicions like going it. around. Uh, I have to say, I don't know. I don't think they have a very good relationship uh, by now. Okay, and then finally, on the other side of the political spectrum, the Israeli left. So Merav Michaeli, the head of labor, announced that she was uh, leaving political life. 
I don't know if there were too many people uh, in the greater Tel Aviv area that shed a lot of tears upon hearing that news. So now Labor is likely looking for a new leader, and Meretz, who is not in the current Knesset, they didn't make it over the threshold, um, is also, I suppose, a political entity. And then you have Yair Golan, the former deputy chief of staff uh, in the IDF, a former uh, Knesset member from Meretz, uh, obviously a hero of October 7th. He went down south uh, very early on and was saving people from the Nova Festival and uh, battling terrorists with his own personal handgun. Uh, he's now looked on or he's looked at as a potential either future head of merits, future head of labor, or Tal, more intriguingly, a merged left-wing party that will arise from the ashes of did you hear, labor and merits. Did you hear me kind of sigh right now when you were talking about that? I, I, I don't know, <laughs> know if that was a sigh or, or if it was a dog reacting to uh, my mention of Meral Michaeli, but why, why did you sigh, Tal? Uh, I sigh because... Um, I feel like that the left is again um, approaching a scenario very similar to the one to the ones that they have been in recent years. So it's true. Merav Michaeli um, has announced that she will uh, evacuate her seat and she will resign, and she's holding. She announced that she's holding a primary for her job, but actually, to be honest, nothing has been done, and it's been a month since that announcement. So she said it's going to happen in four months. I'm not sure by this timeline and timetable that we're actually, it's actually going to be in three months from now, A. B, Yair Golan um, has not decided what does he want. So, of course, the Labour Party definitely wants Yair Golan to come over to them. Yair Golan is now like the hotshot of the Israeli left, the image. You know, everything is about images. His image of a hero on the 7th of October um, has really kind of resonated. And, you know, it's like even overnight, he was suddenly crowned, not officially, but crowned, as the next leader of the Israeli left. So the Labour Party indeed wants him to come and run there. Um, but Yair Golan hasn't decided yet. He himself announced, as you mentioned, that he's uh, forming another party. He doesn't want Meretz. Oh, no. the, relation, the relationship between Yair Golan and Meretz, he, of course, ran in Meretz for a few elections and was a member of Meretz. But the relationship there is very, very bad. Even, I would say, revengeful, if there's a word like that. Full of revenge. Mm -hmm. But um, so, so he does not want Meretz. He's not sure that he wants the Labour Party. So let's take the scenario in which he forms his own party. There, then you still have the Labour Party and you still have the Meretz Party. None of them have taken any steps to create any merge or any new left-wing party. So that basically means that unless something, you know, very surprising happens, we could reach the next elections again with three left-wing no. parties and wait till they unite and wait to see which one of them doesn't pass the threshold. And to be honest, it's not as if Yair Golan, even if you poll him right now, he, he's not a bonanza. It's not as if he brings 15 seats. He brings... 
seven to 10 seats, which is basically what Meret and Labor would get together if they would run together anyway, right? So um, it seems like the left uh, has not yet, you know, there hasn't been yet uh, an act of leadership that will unify the left and give it a new meaning. Um, that's a, another point, uh, which is personally important to me just to say, um, mm-hmm. is that if indeed Yair Golan will be crowned as the leader of the left wing party in whatever constellation it is, it will run. Um, that probably means that in the next Knesset, there once again will, won't be any party led by a woman. All the parties in the Israeli parliament are led by men to, and the, also in the Israeli left. And two of them are generals. Now, ex-generals. Now, I appreciate and respect ex-generals very much. But I can tell you something from my relationship with many of them in the political system over the years. There are no big feminists, okay? So mm-hmm. um, my big concern, and it, it's a personal concern, um, is that uh, um, especially after the war, after a wartime in which, you know, masculine heroism is appraised all day and all night, uh, women in Israel once again will not have access to leadership positions and to serious and significant decision-making positions. Um, and uh, I feel that it's even, you know, more disappointing when it comes, when you look at the center-left and when you look at the Israeli liberal camp, that there isn't even one party led by women, by women. Um, so that's just that's- my personal note on the matter. That's a really important point uh, to emphasize, Tal. And I think you and, um, well, I know Tal Schneider also talks about that a lot, but uh, it should be talked about a lot more, uh, this uh, overly masculine dominance in, in Israeli politics. It's, uh, it, I just want to say, today, women are secluded from the top decision-making in the war. The war cabinet doesn't have any woman inside. Netanyahu's chambers, no woman advisor. Mm-hmm. No, it, um, in the finance ministry led by Smotrich, none of his appointments was a woman. So it means that none of the decision-making today in Israel is made involving women. And um, if the Israeli left doesn't, center left does not know or does not decide that it needs to change that, then it won't change. I mean, if even the liberal camp is all masculine, then it's, I have to say the outlook is very, very depressing. Yeah, um, I agree with you. And just on the issue of uh, the Israeli left, and now you said there may be three parties, so uh, there are no good news uh well, very little good news these days uh, in Israel. You know, war in the south, war in the north, hostages. Uh, and now uh, I'm even more depressed, Hal, uh, about what you just said about the prospects for the Israeli left. Um, thank you for that. Final question for you before I let you go. Um, and it's a big one, and it's one I get all the time. Whether an election 
happens in three months, whether it happens later this year, whether it happens next year, uh, an election will almost certainly happen on the other side no, of this, the, this, this, this war. Uh, yeah. Statistically, if mm-hmm. we look, you know, since 2019, so you had 2019, two elections, <laughs> 2020, yeah. one election, 2021, one election, 2022, one election, 2023, we didn't have an election. So statistically, Unfortunately. It, it seems like 2024 might be a year of elections. Yes. I'll, I'll be very happy uh, if there is an election this year. But this is all prelude to what I was getting at, which is, can Bibi survive another election? Can he actually run, which he doesn't seem like he's giving any indication that he's going to step down, despite 70% uh, of polling consistently in the past three months, say that Netanyahu should either resign immediately or resign right after the war, 70% of the public. Uh, so given that he's likely going to run again and try to cling on to the prime ministership, what do you think, as somebody who has met him and interviewed him many times uh, over many years, uh, can he actually survive? Well, because it's BB, I have my, my, you know, my instinct is to say, yes, he can always survive because it's BB and he always survives things that we never you're think. Making, you're making me even more depressed. Tell. <laughs> but, <good>. but, <laughs> but, but, okay. I don't think he will survive an election, A, because um, I think, you know, that even it's, 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 it's over politics. I think that after the 7th of October, he cannot be, pre- and it's not only him. I think that whoever is responsible and whoever sat in their seats on the 7th of October will not be able to be part of the next leadership of Israel because Israel needs, will need a leadership that enjoys public trust. And you just mentioned yourself, the numbers. Another um, thing that I just want to add on to this as we finish the conversation, just because it's an important timeline. We mentioned, you know, the diplomatic timeline. We mentioned the strategic timeline. We mentioned the budget timeline. But there's another timeline that we didn't mention so far, and it's important to mention it, and that is the legal timeline. Mm. Netanyahu, within a few months, is supposed to take stand in his trial. Now, that is not... A, that is not, you know, um, that is not a, he's not waiting for, for his testimony. Um, a, it's going to be an intense testimony that will take a few days a week for a few weeks. And for the first time, actually, since the trial is opened, he will have to be in court full time. And it'll be the first time when we, Israel will see that it does not see in its eyes that it does not have a full-time prime minister because he's spending half his day in court. Um, B, given that Netanyahu does not want to reach this testimony, then we might, or at least there are some people in his close uh, close Circle. surroundings that think that this is exactly the time that he needs to, you know, get a plea bargain. Uh you might recall we already had a plea bargain in the air uh, two years ago when Netanyahu was in the opposition. That plea bargain could definitely become could could, could definitely come back to the table um, um, in the upcoming months, especially if Netanyahu thinks that he's going to lose the elections. 
then that might be, you know, a plea bargain might be his only way out. Wow. So both scenarios somewhat chilling, right? That the prime minister trying to run a war on multiple fronts is standing trial in, you know, open court in Jerusalem District Court, which would be bad enough. And uh, also who's responsible for the worst disaster the country has ever known. I think that really, that overcomes everything. Yeah, that, well, that was my second point. That is yeah. that he, to avoid that, uh, and maybe with the eye to him realizing finally that he actually can't win another election, that he cuts a deal in the next few months, and actually that's the end of his political career, while a war is still likely ongoing after the disaster of October 7th, and then that'll be it for Bibi Netanyahu, the politician. Um, both scenarios, just... Uh, Incredible, but this is our this is our reality right now. Um, Tal, as always, thank you so much uh, for My coming pleasure. on and breaking it all down for us. And yes, uh, politics uh, is back, or as you said, it never went away uh, because it's Israel. So we hope to have you on again very soon. So thanks. I hope, and perhaps with some better, you know, less depressing scenarios to talk about. Look. These words have never come out of my mouth, but I'll say it right here on the record, uh, literally recorded. Uh, I would be very happy if there's an election called and that I have to go cover another election. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this off the rec- on the record. I am not going to be very happy when a new election <laughs> will be called. But that is totally, totally personal and egoistic. But, uh, you know, again, I'm not the one calling the shots. <laughs> it would be a, a high-class problem. Uh, take care, Tal. Be well. Thank you. Okay, thanks again to Tal Shalev, as always, for her generous time and insights. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work. Do consider making a donation to Israel Policy Forum so it can keep being a credible source of analysis and ideas on issues such as these that we all care deeply about, including this podcast. And most importantly, thank you, thank you for listening.